Welcome to Wednesdays Together. We're so glad you've joined us, and we're right here in Holy Week, also known as Passion Week. And I would humbly submit to you that this week, this week is the most important week in the history of the world, even more significant than the birth of Jesus. This week leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection that's, in my opinion, the most important week in the history of the universe because that's the week in which Jesus fulfilled the purpose for which he came. And that was to ransom and to redeem us from the curse of sin. And so at this time of year, I always want to focus on the power of the cross and all that Jesus sacrificed, even leading up to that moment. You know, when we think of the word garden, we often think of a place of beauty. We think of a place of tranquility, a place of safety, a place that's kind of removed (laughs) and distanced from the stresses of society. You may even think, if you have personal experience with this kind of garden, you may even think of a place where you can receive delicious, healthy, organic food that you grew from your own hands or someone else did uh, that labor and you got to partake in that. And so when I think of garden, I think back to fond memories of my grandparents' garden. You know, looking back, looking back now, I'm sure I probably took for granted all that amazing food that was harvested year after year after year. They loved their garden so much. It was always a top priority. It filled their entire backyard. And, you know, I I guess I didn't realize that uh, <laughs> how, how great it was to have all of that fresh food all, all the time. Uh, and then canned, we'd can it and we'd have it year round even, even after, um, after it was out of season. And if I'm truthful with you, I could also confess that I really did not love sweating in that hot, humid North Carolina sun when we worked in the garden. Anybody know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Uh, But I did love spending time with my grandparents and doing something with them that was so important to them. I loved learning from them. I I loved being with them and doing something that brought them joy. And so when I think of a garden, I think of all of that. I think of love, and I think of familiarity, and I think of comfort. And today, I want to talk to us about two gardens. In the Bible, we read of two gardens where events happened that were quite significant in the plan of salvation, events that absolutely shaped the destiny of our universe. The first one, you've probably heard of the Garden of Eden, where it all began. This was by far the more beautiful garden of the two. It came fresh from the Creator's hand, and there was not a taint of sin or of decay. It was a place of beauty and safety. Just the same way I felt about my grandparents' garden. It was a place where man spoke face to face with his maker. There was no evil present. The devil was actually confined to one space. (laughs) And they wouldn't encounter him unless they came to him there 
at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In this place, in this beautiful garden, the inhabitants were surrounded by love and peace and beauty. The second garden that I'm going to speak about, the Garden of Gethsemane, it was not nearly so lovely as the Garden of Eden. It existed 4,000 years after. So there were 4,000 years of sin and decay on this earth, leaves drying and falling off the trees, weeds growing up among the plants. Plants and flowers died after time. And although it may not have been as beautiful or as perfect as Eden, an incredible event took place here. When the Messiah, our God who became man, prayed in this garden. You see, in that moment, he was surrounded by a world of evil and evil angels. There was a terrible battle unseen to the human eye, but it took place right there on your behalf and on my behalf. It's here that we see the greatest victory that the God of heaven would pour himself out in complete surrender when he didn't have to do it. But he did it. He did it for you and he did it for me. In one garden, that first garden, there was the greatest fall. But in that other garden, there was the greatest victory. You see, there is no Easter. There can be no resurrection without Gethsemane. It's in, Geth- it's in Gethsemane that the true battle was won. The battle over the will. And so I'd like for us to look more closely at the passage that describes what actually took place when Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Okay, so, so this, was, this was right after they had um, experienced Passover together. They had... They had committed to him. We will go with you. We will do whatever. So, so he brings them. Okay, come. Come help bear this burden with me. And he told them, I, I feel as if I'm going to die. My heart is breaking that much. Can you just stay here and pray with me? And so he went a little further um, in private beyond them. Verse 40 says, Uh, Verse 39 says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, Jesus was pouring out from the depths of his soul. And here is where you see a prayer that truly is a kingdom prayer. He, 
shares everything that he's feel that he's feeling in that moment. But then he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. You have to understand that this is our Messiah, God manifest in flesh. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He didn't have to do any of this. And as a man, he didn't want to do any of this. But he knew that that's what he had to do to redeem you and to redeem me. So he is crying out, this is not what I want to do. I know what this is going to be. I know how painful this is going to be. I know how hard this is going to be. But I know my purpose. And I'm committed to that. So I'm committed to kingdom purpose. So God, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done in me. I can only imagine what he must have felt like at that point when he is pouring out his heart and he comes over and there they are asleep right there. Uh, and, and he tells him, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and he's saying, hey, listen, it's not enough just to have a heart that wants to do, but you've got to surrender your will, your flesh has to be surrendered over to me. You have to give all that over to me so you don't enter into temptation. Verse 42, he comes again. It says, again, a second time. He went away and prayed saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again after he's pouring his heart out. He came and found those three, his, his inner circle, those three closest disciples, he found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. They were really tired. I, I'm going to just, I'm just going to confess to you all. I have a hard time thinking harshly about these disciples at this moment. I know that I've had many times I've had uh, the best of intentions. Uh, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe the Lord has woken you up in the night and you felt like you needed to get up and pray for someone. And so you get up and you do that and I can do that and I can do that for a little bit. And then I get a little tired, <laughs> and the next thing you know, I find myself nodding off. Sometimes I may find myself um, <laughs> there's a there's a chair in my in my office where I pray. So sometimes I may find myself when I do wake up, I've got this mark that looks like a permanent tattoo on my forehead from the fabric of, <laughs> of the chair. Uh, yeah, I can relate. I can relate to them. But I also, I also find myself thinking, my goodness, how, this is the beginning of how lonely and isolated our Lord must have felt because even his closest followers were not there for him in his time of need. Verse 44, it says, so he left them and he went away again and prayed the third times, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You see, Jesus knew something right in that moment. He knew what was happening. He knew that this was the moment. This was that things that were already set in place. The timetable had already started. He knew where he was going. He knew long before this, but he knew that his time had come. And so instead of thinking, well, what's my bucket list or, or what, what am I going to do before all this happens? Or instead of scheming for a way out, 
he did something incredible. He humbled himself and he prayed until he had the strength to be able to fulfill that mission that he was called to do. And so he, he prayed until at that moment he sees them coming for him. This is one of the most powerful scenes in all of scripture because it was in this moment that Jesus won the war over his own will. And because of that victory, he won our victory over sin on the cross. Now, unless I am, um, I don't, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I want you to know Jesus Christ was fully God. He was fully man. And he was also completely without sin. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the temptation that was thrown at him. He overcame. You see, you and I, well, we aren't perfect. <laughs> I hate to break that news to you. There's no perfect human who has ever lived. There's only one who is good. There is only one who is perfect. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. You see, the Bible says that every area that it says that he has been tempted just as we are, except the difference is he overcame those temptations. He did not sin. So we know that. And this time in the garden is just another example of that. Rather than running from the pain and suffering that was coming his way, rather than running from the purpose, rather than running from his divine destiny, he found strength in submission. There's a concept um, that we can, that we can um, find in Scripture, and it's the concept of the second Adam. We know that first Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we know the choices. I'm not even going to, to spend a lot of time there um, with you but the, uh, talking, about, talking about that first Adam. But we know, we know that when faced with a, t with a test, that Adam did not pass that test, and that because of his sin— Sin entered into the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And I, I, want to, I want us to think about it from a biblical perspective of what Adam did, Jesus Christ undid. Now listen, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. What came into the world by one man's sin was now redeemed and undone and the curse was broken by all that our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. I wish somebody would give him some praise for that right now. We can thank him for what he has done, that the curse from the garden is not still hanging over our heads, that we have redemption and we have freedom in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verses 18 and 19 tell us all about that. It says, therefore, as through one man, Adam, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift. Somebody say free gift. Why don't you type that in the chat? It's free. It's free for me. <laughs> the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus reversed 
the curse that Adam brought to humanity. Jesus was the only one who could do that. If you, if you read that passage, if you look at it, um, when it's referring to Adam, one man, Adam's man is lowercase. When it's referring to Jesus, one man, that's a capital letter. That shows you his lordship. That shows you that he was different. That shows you that he was divine. He was fully God. He was fully man. And he was the only one the only one who could successfully overcome the tests, the temptations, and to redeem us back to himself. Jesus reversed the curse that Adam brought to humanity. You see, what Adam failed to do, refusing to sin, Jesus Christ was victorious at that. Okay? He refused to sin. Adam failed to do that, but Jesus was victorious. Jesus, here in Gethsemane, he conquered his own will. He conquered his own will. Not only was he tempted and overcame those temptations throughout his ministry without sinning, but he also took on our sin that Adam introduced to humanity. I hope that's not lost on anyone. As you're thinking about Easter, as you're thinking about Good Friday, as you're thinking about all that Jesus endured for us. It's when he was on the cross, when he was bearing the weight and the shame of sin, it wasn't his sin because he had not committed sin. It was your sin. It was my sin. It was the sin of every human being that had ever lived. And so that heavy weight was on him. And to be able to endure that, he had to win the war of his will. And he did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. The famous preacher Spurgeon shared, talking about Jesus being the second Adam, he said, see yonder another king's garden, which the king waters with his bloody sweat, Gethsemane, whose bitter herbs are sweeter far to renewed souls than even Eden's luscious fruits. What he's saying is the bitterness of Gethsemane is even sweeter to us than all the beauty, all the deliciousness, all the splendor of Eden because Eden couldn't save us. But Gethsemane is where the war was won. There the mischief of the serpent in Gethsemane, there the mischief of the serpent from the first garden was undone. There the curse was was lifted from earth and born by the woman's promised seed. It's in Gethsemane where we see that very first messianic prophecy being fulfilled because that's the moment where we see again Jesus, his will. He is overcoming all that Satan is throwing at him. What a contrast, what a stark contrast between two great gardens of temptation. You see, in the Garden of Eden, under a really small amount of pressure, okay, let's be honest, that temptation that they were faced with, Adam succumbed to that temptation and he sinned. Adam disobeyed God's will and by that one act of disobedience, he dragged the whole of of humanity down into darkness. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, under infinite pressure from a host of hell, 
Jesus resisted the immense temptation to obey his Father's will, sealing that final summit of obedience. Jesus, the last Adam, he succeeded where his predecessor failed. As our sinless substitute, Jesus Christ completed his life of righteousness for us. And then he died on a cross, enduring God's punishment for our sins. You see, in the Garden of Eden, that was, that was the highest mark for humanity at that time. Man was the highest he could be. He was created perfect and blameless by a perfect and holy God. And he was able to fully commune with that perfect and holy God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, man was the lowest he could be. Because just after, just after all this takes place, Jesus even said, behold, my betrayer is coming. Just after the most excruciating prayer meeting ever experienced here on earth, that betrayer, that one man who fulfilled the purpose of turning Jesus over to those who would ultimately kill him. He betrayed and sold out our king of glory for the price of a slave, and he did it with a kiss. In one garden, Satan inhabited a serpent. In another garden, Satan inhabited a man. In one, man walked perfect and faced temptation. In the other, Jesus as fully God and fully man walked perfect and faced temptation, but he overcame. You see, we have hope. We have hope today. And Easter is all about that hope. Jesus reconciled man to himself at the cross. He came as the last Adam to be that sacrificial lamb and to impute his righteousness to cover us with that, to all who call on him. In the Garden of Eden, Adam's choice to commit sin brought condemnation to everyone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ's decision to die for sins provided justification to everyone. There is no resurrection without Gethsemane. You see, every single day, we walk in the gardens of decision. But how will we face these challenges? How will we face these tests, these trials, these temptations? That is the real question. What does Gethsemane teach us? It shows the stark contrast between two different responses in two different gardens. When faced with temptation, Adam impulsively chose to feed his flesh. When faced with temptation to walk away from his purpose, Jesus Christ purposefully chose to pour out his own desires, to win the battle of the flesh, and to show us where we find true victory. The Garden of Gethsemane was located on the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane is Aramaic in origin. And that word means olive press. 
Gethsemane was and is a place where olive trees grew and produced their fruit. The olives were collected and they were placed in a press. And that precious olive oil was extracted from the olives under intense pressure. How appropriate was it that this is the location where Jesus Christ would pour himself out for us? How appropriate was it that on this night, our Lord would enter his own olive press of sorts and that sweet oil of grace and submission would be extracted from his own life. As he, in, as he faced those intense pressures, the anointing flowed out of that crushing experience. I wonder if we can thank him for that right now. I wonder if we can thank him for that right now. <coughs> Dear Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful. We are so grateful for the anointing that began in Gethsemane that continues to flow right here on us in this sacred holy moment. There is no resurrection without Gethsemane. There is no victory without pouring yourself out. There is no victory without complete surrender. There is no victory without crushing. You see, in moments of trial and testing, of pain and suffering, our tendency is to run from those things. But victory, victory comes in the pressing. I know some of you are thinking, my goodness, I'm so tired of being pressed. I'm so tired of being pressed. And if I can humbly ask you, what are you doing when you're being pressed? How are you responding? Are you running the other way? Are you refusing to allow that anointing of the Spirit of God to flow through you, to flow from you, to touch other people? Or are you fighting as hard as you can? Are you pushing as much as you can? Are you like Adam thinking, I'm, I, 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 need a, I need a break. I need relief from this. This is too hard. I, I, sure, I want to try that. I want to know what it's like. I need something different. I need something more. I can't handle this pressure. I can't handle this temptation. Our victory comes from surrendering to the pressing, surrendering to the crushing. Jesus not only won a personal victory through this experience of crushing, but he modeled for you and he modeled for me what we should do when faced with temptation. You see, we're not called to run from the pain or to run from the test, but we are called to run into the arms of our good Father. When troubles come, when tests come, when trials come our way, we are called to run into the arms of grace and mercy that will be there to strengthen us, that will be there to fulfill his will in us. And even when his will is not what we would choose for ourselves, it will always be something beautiful because he will redeem it for his glory. And so I, I just want to encourage you, please, please don't let the exhaustion and the overwhelm, those feelings of overwhelm, get the best of you. Like what we saw with the disciples. 
who, who couldn't stay praying with him. Don't let your desire for the things of the world lure you like we saw with Adam. But pray, pray until something breaks in you. Pray until something happens in the spirit. I'm convinced, I'm wholly convinced that Adam would never have eaten the fruit had he fully understood, if he, if he could have seen the results, right? He never would have eaten the fruit if he had known the consequences to himself and to the entire human race. But he couldn't see the results. He couldn't see the results any more than you can see the results of your sin or I can see the results of my sin before I commit that. We might know, we might have an idea, but he, he had no way of completely understanding what that meant. All he had was God's word and its warning. And now we've got the benefit of God's word and a lot more stories, a lot more examples of the blessings of obedience and the curse of disobedience. But even still, ultimately what we've got is we've got God's word and we've got its warning. And just like Adam had two choices then, we have two choices now. I can rule myself or I can let God's kingdom to rule and reign in me. I can rule my own ways, my own thoughts, my own plans, or I could surrender and submit my will to the King of glory, whose purpose and plan and perfect will are always better than anything I could ever hope or dream of. If you've ever seen pictures of Gethsemane, or maybe you've even been there, if you look at the proximity of the walls of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane, it, it's, it's pretty close. It, there's, a striking, there's a striking realization when you see that. And that is that Jesus, in that moment, he even says, behold, here, here comes my betrayer. In that moment that he is battling his will, he sees what is happening. He sees that his death is imminent and his torture and his suffering and his shame. And he sees that all the sins of humanity are about to be placed on his shoulders. He could see all of those things, but he still chose to stay in that garden out of obedience to his purpose and out of love for us. We are called today not to save others. We can't do that. Only Jesus can save other people. But we are called to fully surrender our lives to God's purpose in us. We are called so that when the temptation comes, and it will come, it does come. When the pain, when the despair, when the anxiety, when it's easier to give into the anxiety, than it is to have hope. We know what that means. When the pressing and the crushing comes, we are called to surrender to God's purpose within us. You see, we can follow the example that our Lord Jesus Christ lived before us, and we can find our strength from surrender to our divine destiny. I want us to pray right now. I know that every message, I know this message might not make us feel good. But I hope 
And I pray that this message will compel us to become more like him. Let's pray right now. Dear God, here we are, humble before you. The gravity of this week is not lost on us, Lord. We see your sacrifice. We can't even comprehend. We can't even fathom all that you experienced. And Lord, the fact that you would endure the cross for us, we know we are not worthy. We understand the strength that you gained to do that was found in the submission that you willingly partook of in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we thank you, God, for reversing the curse of Eden and for bringing promise back to us in Gethsemane. We thank you for showing us, Lord, how to face the pressing, how to face the crushing, how to surrender completely to your purpose and to trust you because it may feel dark, it may feel desperate, it may feel gloomy, but we know that Sunday is on the way, that resurrection is coming, but without Gethsemane, there would be no resurrection. So right now, for my brothers and sisters who feel like they have been weeping and mourning and suffering and struggling, I pray right now, grace upon them, Lord, grace upon me, grace upon all of us, Lord, that we could know your goodness, that we could know your grace. And Lord, that when that crushing and that pressing comes, that we would lean into your goodness and your strength and your grace instead of running to our own plans and desires. We repent of following our own ways and we surrender to you completely. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen, amen. I hope that as you are contemplating all that God has done, I hope that as you are thinking about the incredible sacrifice of Jesus, as we celebrate this Sunday, I hope as you are celebrating that, that you take moment, you take some moments this week for introspection, to pray for God to show you how, his will and how he, can, how he can receive glory in you and how you can more fully surrender. This Friday night, we're going to have a Good Friday service. It will be 8 p.m. You can, you can partake in it online. We'll be right here in person as well, socially distanced, so it'll be safe for you to come. And we'll be taking communion in that service. And I pray right now, between now and Friday, search your heart. Ask God to reveal things in you that aren't like him wash them away and draw you closer to him. And when we partake in that communion experience together on Friday night, God is going to be with us. He is going to bless us. He is going to strengthen us. Of course, Easter is Sunday. We are going to celebrate the resurrection. We will be here in person at 9 a.m. And we'll also be here in person at 11 a.m. And our online service will be at 11 a.m. Just for this Sunday for special Easter service hours. So we pray that you will join us. If there's anything that you need, let us know. Why don't you fill out a Connect card if you're new to the sanctuary? Or if you have a need from us, fill that out. If your contact information has changed, we want to be sure that you are kept in the loop of everything that's going on this, coming, this week and in the weeks to come. We're so grateful for what God 
God is doing. Why don't you invite your friends and family to join us for Good Friday or for Easter? We can't wait to see all that God is doing. We love you. God bless you.